and welcome to How We Got Here, a podcast between Nondoc Media and FKG Consulting. I'm Trace Savage, the editor-in-chief of Nondoc Media, and I'm here in FKG Consulting World Headquarters on 23rd Street in Oklahoma City overlooking uh, four lanes of blacktop and a gigantic parking lot where one of our partners here is parked over a line ryan kilpatrick uh what's what's going on hey you know i mean just a little uh just didn't pay close attention i guess and it wasn't entertaining to watch you try to squeeze out of your car as you chose to park right next yeah, to me. yeah i so. parked right next to you and i was like who is this oh hey ryan how are you yeah yeah wonderful yeah you, yeah you, your face you know you're kind of wrapping on my window there but hey it's, you know at least you're, you're you're a good fit for a skinny little space right. like that so that's why yeah. i drive the golden falcon uh, go. that's my that's my 20 year old toyota camry it's uh totaled out so you can hit it with your door and it won't it doesn't really take any skin off my back um so ryan is here with us and then uh brian freed also of fkg brian how are you i'm doing well good we are uh we're shooting this from squarely within blue territory in the in the state of oklahoma one of the one of the few few places absolutely and directly above a bar i feel like so you know as we've as we've referenced before so that's right um whereas in uh a year earlier, some counties didn't even have liquor by the drink. So um, what a world it is right now here in Oklahoma. Um, well, we're recording this Friday, November 9th. That's three full days after uh, November 6th general election. And that's going to be the topic of this podcast. Um, this is our 14th episode, I believe. So if you listen to one a day, you can have two full weeks of us yammering about local civics and political issues. Um Guys, let's let's just say real quick, we've got a list of things we're going to go over. But what were your big takeaways um, from election night, and then and then maybe later we'll talk, you know, looking forward as well, because there's a lot on the horizon. Well, I think you know, I think when you look back on this entire election cycle, and and actually just the past six months, uh, it's pretty fascinating because in this short a period of time, we have legalized medical marijuana. Uh, we have modernized, you know, finally, the implementation of the modernization of alcohol laws has gone into effect. Uh, and then on election night, uh, we had uh, one of the, uh, I believe, uh, actually rated by um, 538 uh, site as to be the biggest upset in the country, uh, with Kendra Horn winning a, a seat over Steve Russell here in the 5th Congressional District. And, and so we, we kind of had a, and, and there were some other um, uh, upsets uh, th- within that exact same area uh, at legislative uh, races. So you had this um, kind of blue uh, rogue wave that hit uh, some areas of Oklahoma County, uh, but then it was a massive red wave tsunami in rural Oklahoma and the rest of the state. And so it's kind of, a, kind of an interesting um, uh, election. We've been talking about the demographic changes on this podcast for a while, and I think that uh, we saw them come to fruition on election night. Yeah, I think, um, you know, Brian, I think you, you summed it up pretty well. The, uh, if, you looked, if you just look strictly at the election board and registration numbers over, the, for the, over the, what changed in the, this two-year cycle, you would it what happened on Tuesday night would would pretty much would look a lot like what those numbers look like I think here and especially you know we may be a little we may be viewing this a little through an Oklahoma City bubble being here there was a lot of thought we were hearing prior to the election that there would be a, you know the the, the governor's race looked looked by all polling to be a lot clo- like it was going to be a lot closer than it ended up and the statewide even elections they there were those were pretty big gaps but most of those ended up higher than expected with higher expected numbers for the Republican candidate so I think you know we we got a lot of what the the numbers kind of panned out the way things are going with registrations and like you said Oklahoma County is kind of trending a, a completely different direction from the rest of the state um, and that that panned out a lot in legislative races that we're seeing with you know urban seats going blue in a lot of cases and Democrats almost being entirely shut out of rural seats I think they're down to five rural seats in the House and none really in the Senate so at least that are based in rural areas so. yeah yeah I think in the Senate it's three precincts that are outside of Tulsa County, Oklahoma County, and Cleveland County. I think wow. there's three precincts in the uh, Michael Brooks Jimenez seat Canadian. Uh, that are in, or, you know, into Canadian and, County, and, yeah. <laughs> which, which, which is not is, as rural as you might think. Right, um, yeah. And only one, in western Oklahoma, only one one house seat that's blue at west of essentially the Oklahoma City and metro area. Right, so, Perry, Perryman. Yeah. Um, so what do you guys, I guess let's, let's start there. We kind of... Uh, 
before we started the podcast, we said we were going to go over about four of the items. I, I wrote an editorial on Nondoc uh, before the election and kind of said a few areas to watch, and we were going to go a few of these. The first one that I'd said there was that late nights in Tulsa um, could affect the governor's race, and there's other gubernatorial factors. Turned out didn't really need to wait for Tulsa results to come in um, as uh, Kevin Stitt uh, kind of dominated the state of Oklahoma, um, and he, it, it sort of wind up being a reverse of, of traditional maps, right, where I think that uh, Edmondson won Oklahoma County and Cleveland County, um, and that was about it. Yeah, and only two Stitt others. Did, and we'll talk about that in just mm-hmm. a second, and Stitt did um, really well in every other part of the state, and it, I think he had major coattails, but... I'm also curious, do you think, what do you think was responsible for this sort of larger Republican turnout than I think anybody had really projected? Well, I think that Ryan hit on something that's very important. And we, I remember we talked about this on one of our previous podcasts when we were previewing the governor's uh, race. And we went through and we talked about the voting registration numbers. And, and we pointed out that when Brad Henry won election uh, back uh, whenever he ran the very first time, that Brad Henry, uh, he ended up getting 42, maybe 43 percent of the vote. But at that time, the registration was, uh, I'm going to roughly call it, 48 percent Democrat and 39 percent Republican. And here we were moving into this election cycle, and in that period of time, that had completely flipped. And the Republican registration numbers uh, far outweighed the Democrat registration numbers in the state. Uh, which is which ironically that people don't realize outside of Oklahoma is a new phenomenon in Oklahoma that Republicans are uh, padding their stats. But what I f- was was a little bit perplexed with through this entire process was there was clearly a significant amount of energy amongst Democrats for their candidate Drew Edmondson. Th- they they the there was a lot of energy around it. He was doing better in some Republican areas of Oklahoma County that I think made you think and possibly, in hindsight, read too much into um, the momentum that he that he possibly had. Uh, and we had the teacher walk out, and we had all the stuff going on with teachers, and the teachers were, by and large, united behind uh, Drew Edmondson. But at the same time, at the same time, all of that was happening when we were seeing election when we were seeing um, uh, registration numbers come in from the election board. It was showing that. The largest group of registration change was from Democrat to Republican, uh, from Democrat to Independent. Republicans were gaining registration all through this in process. New new people registering uh, was not jiving with kind of this momentum that that was was we were all anecdotally talking about. It was even after the runoff. I mean, you would think that maybe some people switched so they could vote in a Republican runoff. Right. But even in that period after the runoff. There were still more people who were. I think the I think the election board um, added that new feature where you could go online and update your registration, update your party affiliation, et cetera, et cetera. And when they announced that, a bunch of people went in and switched. Um, and and going to Republican was again the largest um, number. Just as a quick shout out to the election board, um, I think they did a really good job. Yeah. Uh, and the new. Did you guys use the beta test Absolutely. system? Oh, yeah. That Outstanding. Was, that awesome. was awesome. It was. It had an auto refresh option and then you could hit favorites yep the yeah. favorites thing was huge the maps i mean yeah. great it's I mean, it was using them right now so. really all right yeah it was a really great no um, i think you're right we, we should absolutely give a shout out they do a great job and we're all zeros and and brian dean big time and, and when we have a lot of these conversations going on across the country you know as we're recording this podcast you know uh, broward county is still re, uh, counting uh, ballots down there and and they can't tell you how many ballots are out all that type of stuff we just don't have those problems in Oklahoma, and that, you know that right. really is a credit to. We, we talk a lot about things that Oklahoma doesn't do well, uh, but this is one of those areas they they really do well. Do they have a dangling Chad or a hanging uh, Chad? Hanging down Chad. There? They, they, they have to. There's is hanging that, Chads. There's all kinds of stuff. Humidity affecting the ballot machines. Who knows? Was that? I I, I saw that. I heard that somewhere. It was like second hand, <laughs> but it's just like I mean, well, what, what, what next? A gator is going to be blocking the ballot box or access? Did, or didn't something? like I mean, a, didn't like a middle school or high school student hack the georgia system or something like that i and didn't see that there was like a contest and he did it in like yes, an hour i saw yeah <laughs> or something. yeah um 
I mean, I don't mean to laugh, but so, um, yeah, so, but, so, so we talked a little bit about. So, you, Brian, I, I feel bad I interrupted you. You were saying that this this wave was switching. I, I do want to challenge. I don't know. Um, I just want to throw it out there. It felt like Democrats had a lot of momentum, um, and in, there were some polling numbers that said it was a three point race, a four point race. Um, obviously, uh, Stitt and Stitt aligned forces. Uh, dominated the TV ads in the last about week, 10 days. Um, there was a sort of a drop-off there um, on the Democratic side. But uh, in, in general, I wonder if, you know, we live in social media realms now, and um, it, cer- it sometimes I feel like it can certainly seem like, quote, I'm doing air quotes, which is a really stupid thing to do on a podcast, uh, that everybody... Uh, you know, was behind Edmondson, um, or all the educators were behind um, Democrats and, and were aligned that way. And, and I think clearly that, I, I think clearly the perception in my circles was different than the reality wound up being. I think social media distorts reality. I don't think there's any question about it. Um, and when you go back and look at these numbers, Oklahoma County is the area that Drew, uh, Drew Edmondson did the best. And, you know, that's, that's, that's where a lot of our friends and colleagues and, and others uh, um, uh, live. And so I think that's part of the perception. I also am wondering, and this is, you know, uh, I have no statistics to back, back this up, but even, you know, Stitt closing strong, Stitt getting the undecideds to go his way, all that type of stuff— really still does not explain the margin of victory. Correct. I mean, to me, if the margin of victory was six or seven points or eight points, then I think all of that type of stuff would have been an easy thing to explain that, you know, he just ended up getting uh, all of the undecideds to, to go with him in the last minute and all that type of stuff. I wonder if there is a little bit, and I'm, I'm not comparing Kevin Stitt to Donald Trump. They are two different people. But they both ran on this outsider's uh, kind of, kind of a, a message obviously i wonder if what's what the problem with polling is we all know how polling is done and, and pollsters do a, a great job uh and they're they're usually pretty accurate but uh in in these in these cases we saw that the presidential election was a little off this this election was clearly off and i wonder if part of the problem that we have here is there are a lot of unconventional voters that come out in droves to vote for people that they see as either like them or they're not part of the political system or something along those lines. And that's just really hard to predict on the front end because, but clearly some element of that seems to be happening. I I think there's a potential there. I'm going to pitch a slightly different theory and then we're going to let Ryan determine, I guess that's how this works. If we have a three man booth, um, it, and, and, and I want to say before my theory that I think, obviously, we're going to talk about Eastern Oklahoma and the 2nd Congressional District here in just a second. I think, obviously, um, Drew Edmondson's past as Attorney General working against uh, State Question 777, there were agricultural interests and people in that ag-heavy part of the state uh, who, who went out and were motivated to vote against him. Right. Um, but still, I'm not convinced that that uh, resulted in five to six to seven percent higher margin of victory for for Mr. Stitt than than we had anticipated. So my thinking was that I saw a lot of ads that showed people to vote for Republican or else you'll have Pelosi give everybody free food and cause World War Three and all those things. You see that you see some yep, of those ads yep. vote Republican no matter what, right? Right. And your for the last will get co- taken away or yeah. Yeah. And so then your your last couple of weeks on the national level, um, you know, President Trump was stumping uh pretty heavily and I think you know, in some places not very effectively, but in other places very effectively. Indiana being a good example. Mm-hmm. He overtly asked people to vote like he was on the ballot. And he's getting enormous crowds. I mean Mm-hmm. Huge, like yes. him or huge. not, huge. he is getting. Did you say huge? Huge. huge. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> he's getting. Say it again. I, 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 no, I can't. All right, huge. Anyway. Uh, he's getting huge crowds, and um, the biggest crowds you've ever seen. Yeah. And it's like the inauguration. <laughs> uh, 
he's he's drawing people who maybe otherwise I think might have set at, sat out a midterm election. Yeah. Um, he overtly told them vote like I'm on the ballot, mm-hmm. and I think that if you look at the the migrant caravan issue and how that was played up, and if you look at some of the other things that were were really brought up throughout the primary here in the Republican Party. Everybody, every pollster would have told you that immigration was either the number one or number two issue um, for, for Republican voters. So I think that I, my theory is, and I don't have any evidence, Brian, just like you said you didn't have any evidence on yours. I feel like a, a substantial chunk of people in more rural communities in Oklahoma voted like Donald Trump was on the ballot and like it was a referendum on that on that national level because I just never really felt that Kevin Stitt was just inspiring everybody under the sun to get out and really cast a ballot. I just never got that a sense, but I got the sense that on the national level, if what you paid attention to was your local six-page paper and the uh, Fox News, I felt like on the national level you were you were pretty fired up to go turn out. Yeah, no, I I think there's probably a lot of overlap between the two theories you just put out there. So I'm going to go classic middleman and say I think that they're both probably true to some degree. If you look at turnout compared to our last two uh, open seat gubernatorial races in for, uh, in 2010 and 2002, I mean, both of those hovered right at 50%, essentially. We're six points above that. This turnout looked a lot more like a presidential year. And so you're, what you just said there, Trace, I think does translate into that. I think we saw a lot of voters who may have not normally, who may normally would not have come out before 2016, get re-energized by potentially some of the same messaging nationally in 2018. Yeah, and I think uh, uh, Ryan's exactly right. Turnout was huge, and I think turnout. Um, I, I think I think that Drew Edmondson would have thought a big turnout was going to be beneficial to him, mm-hmm. and that's the other uh, part of this that's really fascinating to look at. Uh, but one other little, one other factor that I do think you have to throw in there is straight party voting was uh, a factor here. Yep. Um, yep. We had uh, there are roughly um, a, a million registered Republicans in the state of Oklahoma, and a little over three hundred thousand did straight party voting. So you have a third of Republicans just did straight party voting. And, and I think it was even, and that's of the, the, that's registered. So that's not even those I who it turned was out. Two thirds. I think it's of those who turned out. Yeah, it was like oh yeah, yeah. yeah. So that's just four yeah. percent. Yeah. So of those yeah. that actually turned out, yeah. Uh, yeah, much higher, much higher than that. So you had the the raw numbers on that. There's three hundred seven thousand, uh, uh, basically Republican straight party votes to one hundred sixty one thousand Democrats. So that's a lot of, that's a lot of vote differential right there. Yeah. Um, part of it too is uh, we talked about this on a previous po- previous podcast. Drew Edmondson was the turnout machine for the Democrat Party. They didn't have any real um, outstanding candidates at any of the other secondary statewide uh, offices. And so outside of Kendra Horn, um, it was all on his on his back to turn out, which, you know, I think is a mistake in a general sense. You need to you, all of those other races need to be having people coming out to vote. And um, I think if you were just compelled to go out and vote for Mike, Matt Pinnell because uh, you really like that guy, you probably then were t- turn around and voting for Kevin Stitt. You right. know, and I think that's what happens a lot of times. So uh, I, I, I wound up splitting my ballot yeah. more than I can remember in. Sure. I mean, yeah. I mean, in two in two statewide races, you didn't even have a Democrat option. So, I mean, that's was sure. I mean, which is it's kind of pretty. I mean, it's we've seen that before, but it's pretty amazing. Back to straight party, really quick, just because it's an interesting thing, and to shout out to the election board again. If anyone's looking for something just interesting on their Twitter, um, they've posted something after their straight party statistics of the what the first straight party ballot looked like in for the first yeah, general election good. in 1907. And it had three parties on there as well. Um, not the three we have today. The libertarians were not there back then, but we had the Republicans, Democrats, and the socialist ticket you could vote for. So yeah. it's kind of interesting to see that, a little interesting history yeah, there. If you've got so. that, link that to me. I'll put it in the post when we, when we do this. You know, um, just as an aside, Oklahoma had the highest, I think it was in the... I think it was in the like 1920. Whenever, whenever, when did when did uh, Eugene, Eugene Debs? Debs, yeah, when he he was on the ballot a couple times, uh, like four, but um, once in jail, I believe. And but Oklahoma had the highest per capita registration of socialists in the country um, in the early 1920s or late 19-teens. And that is a mind-boggling stat, Brian. You it said is. you said earlier, I, and I said this to a buddy of mine um, who's a 
an attorney and a, a really bright guy. He's, he's very fed up with politics uh, in general. And I was talking to him about how, um, you know, Republicans ran the legislature for the first 95, you know, 90 years of state, 95 Dem- years of, of state. Yeah. Th- did I say, did I say Republicans? Yeah. I meant Democrats. Right. Um, and yeah, Democrats ran the legislature and he just couldn't believe it. It yeah. blew his mind, you know? And so you've seen the pendulum really swing. Uh, whereas now, and, 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 and as a result of that, uh, for many of those years, as you guys and, and your, your folks would, would know and could attest to, um, the breakdown was often urban versus rural. And I think we're seeing that now, but it's switched. Whereas it used to be urban, uh, Republicans. Republicans and yep. maybe Bartlesville and Ponca city. Yep. And now you have urban as Democrats and everything else is red. It's going to make for a really interesting redistricting. Since we're talking about urban and rural, let's move on to number two. The thing that I said we should take a look at is Eastern Oklahoma's second congressional district. And then since the lines are a little weird, I threw in, uh, Wagner County and Ada and, and all that sort of stuff. Uh, Drew Emerson got trounced. And um, I want to give you, Ryan, you have the numbers county by county you can pull up, right? Yeah. Pull up Muskogee County. Uh, Muskogee County yeah, is where yeah, uh, Drew Edmondson was. I've actually got attorney. that because I was going to talk about that myself. Well, well Brian, um, why don't you tell us what it showed then? Well, the, the, I think, let, let's, for, for real quick, so, so Drew Edmondson won four counties out of 77 in, in the state of Oklahoma. Mm-hmm. One of those counties is Muskogee County, where Drew Edmondson is from, was a district attorney, a longtime family. Uh, there and so, uh, of the four counties, Muskogee is one that he won, and he won that county by one single vote. Uh, so, uh, one of one of the counties that he's getting credit for winning was only by a single vote. And so, when you really look at the four counties, uh, and I'll jump back over to your question. I'm sorry, no, that's uh, good. but uh, Oklahoma County was where he really, um, you know, kind of got patted his lead uh he won uh oklahoma county by 28,000 right votes. he run it by pretty much the reverse margin of the statewide race 54 42 yeah. yeah and and then when you went down to cleveland county uh he won cleveland county but he only won that by about 4,000 votes uh we already talked about muskogee and then the other county he won was cherokee county uh and he only won cherokee county by about 600 votes so, uh, but when you go into Eastern Oklahoma and look at that sixth, second congressional district, this is for a lot of our listeners going back to that kind of lesson. Southeast Oklahoma used to be called Little Dixie because it was the bastion of Democrat votes in the state of Oklahoma. You could count no matter what, whoever you ran was going to win Southeast Oklahoma. Uh, uh, without fail. And I, and, and if you hover through and look at what has happened in Southeast Oklahoma now, it is pretty fascinating. Uh, McCurtain County, Kevin Stitt won 68 to 29. And, uh, and registration in McCurtain County still is, is nearly twice as many Democrats as, as Republicans. Absolutely. Push, I mean, they, push Mataha 63 to 33. Uh, I mean, it is just a fascinating what has happened uh, whenever, whenever you're looking at that, uh, and it just, quite frankly, tells the story of what happened on election night. And it translates across the board, really, too. I mean, you mentioned Southeast Oklahoma. If you look at the legislative map for Southeast Oklahoma now, there's exactly one legislative seat in that part of the state that remains in Democrat hands, and that's in the, the far, the far Southeast District, District One. And so. that's, I mean, uh, former Sheriff Tadlock in the State House is well liked, but nobody filed against it. Right, exactly. And so. so he had, he didn't have to be on that ballot there. Um, you, you, you saw uh, two seats in, in McAllister, you know, formerly very strong Democrat seats. Um, the open seat that was held by uh, Dr. Renegar was uh, that went to Randy Randleman. Is that right? I believe that's right. Is that Randy or is I Randy up at, at I, you know what, where's my intern when I need him? Uh, Here I got it. Just a quick shout out, by the way, to Ben White, our intern. Random was the candidate seat. Oh, Did sorry. Great job. Oh, you're fine. Yes, talk over him. He's the in, in yeah, intern. Can- he was the candidate seat. It was um, Jim Grego. Jim Grego yeah, from yeah, Wilburton. Okay. Yep. Right. Uh, sure, of course, uh, the Gregos of Wilburton. Um, and so the Renegar seat went, and then Donnie Condit was a, an educator um, who was uh, an incumbent on the ballot there, and he lost um, by what about a hundred votes or so. I'm, I'm, it's like I don't have a computer in front of me. Um, but he he lost, and then you had, um, yeah, it was it was about uh, two hundred and forty votes, or uh, no, three hundred forty votes. 
We've already determined I can't do math on this. About 450 votes, I think. Podcast. 350. Oh, I'm sorry. I was looking at election day. You're right. Yeah. Gosh, <laughs> dang. Uh, anyway. Uh, and then w- the Hoskins seat um, went, and I, I did happen to, I hope that um, the gentleman who, uh, Rusty Cornwall, uh, Cornwell, has a good sense of humor. We ran his a screenshot of his uh, Facebook photo from his time on the Kid Rock Chillin' the Most uh, cruise. So I uh, look forward to meeting him in person uh, when the session starts. But he won. That was the Chuck Hoskins seat that's in the heart of the Cherokee Nation. Um, yeah. And he, he pulled that out uh, in Benita. And um, there helped me out. Uh, Karen Gaddis's seat in Broken Arrow, not quite uh, rural Oklahoma, but that was a loss from the Democrats. And then um, Ben Loring barely survived barely, up in Ottawa yeah. County in, in Miami in the far northeast quarter of the state, uh, or corner of the state. And then um, I'm forget. Oh, Ed Kennedy's seat. We talked about mm-hmm. Randy Randleman won that. Um, and then the the big one, and we're probably going to spend a minute talking about this, was that the House Minority Leader Steve Co- Copeland um, lost by how many votes is that? Somebody do math on uh, 363. Oh no no no. Uh, even even about fewer than that. Yeah, three. Eh, no, or, or that's election day. Yep, I was keep doing that too. Um, about less than 400, 350 somewhere in that range. Yeah. So that was a big shock to people. I mean, that was a shock to people. Uh, in in inner circle. I think including the, the one who won. I right. You you don't <laughs> think that Logan? So Logan Phillips will be the new. Um, will be the new uh, representative from there. And um, uh, the, the rumor is that his third cousin is in my fantasy football league, so I'm going to leave it at that. Uh, hopefully get to get to, uh, get to know him a little bit. Yeah, well, I mean, that's what, you know, that's what you start to hear. Um, There's no stronger link than a third cousin. Well, I'm, just... I, yeah, I, I'm hoping that the representative can put some pressure on him to get him to trade me some players. Um, so uh, I am the defending champ. Anyway, uh so I think that, you know, if you look at that, that was sort of a casual way of us stumbling through names, but that was a swath of red across eastern Oklahoma. And not only has that never happened before to that extent, um, it it mitigated and actually undid some of the gains that, that House Democrats had made uh, in other parts of the state, namely Oklahoma County and Tulsa County, this election and in other elections. Democrats did turn... Um, House District 82. No, did they turn 82? 83. 83. 83. Yeah, 83. They turned 83 blue um, and turned a couple other seat. Uh, the, um, was they it 80? The seat, yeah, uh, the Midwest Roger City Ford. seat that Roger yep. Ford had. Yep. Um, so they, they had some some gains there, but boy, they lost they lost other ones in eastern Oklahoma. So, so Ryan, at the end of the day, uh, the House of Representatives uh, going into the race, kind of the thought process on where some of the battleground races were, what was the, uh, and then what was the end result as far, far as party control? Yeah, sure. So I believe, and I'm, we had a vacancy, um, but it was, we went into the night with this, what, 72 to 28, I believe, yep. Republican advantage. Um, Republicans came out of that with, they, they now have a, the, any supermajority you can describe again, 76, which gives them Three fours. They um, can they can raise taxes just with their own caucus. <laughs> that's right. Seventy six to twenty five, um, and you know I think um, that the three incumbents, contrary to what we saw in the primaries and the primary runoffs, the incumbents that lost on election night on the House side were only Democrats this time. We only we saw Republicans right. in only exclusively Republicans um, in June and August, and then but we had three House Democrats that we've already gone through. I think that we saw lose on election night. So. Um, you know, I think that was a bit of a surprise. I think there were there were some folks who thought the Democrats might pick up a few seats in the House, um, but I, you know, I, I think most people thought it would stay pretty close to balance. And the the margin we saw a gain of four was, I think, a little bit surprising, um, but fit with the trend that we saw statewide. And I go back to if you look at the registration numbers and you look at how these parts of the state are voting, I think it's traces smart to key on Eastern Oklahoma. I mean, there's it's just it's a it's not what it used to be for Democrats. And it's also where there are actually uh, vote blocks that are, are large enough to retain seats. Um, you know, the question is going to be in redistricting uh, after the 2020 election. And, and let's keep in mind, it's going to be harder for Democrats to win rural Oklahoma seats in 2020 um, because President Trump will be up for re-election again. 
I, I don't think – does anybody think it will be easier for them? I think it will be harder. No, I mean that traditionally would, would make that the case, yeah. Right. So perhaps yeah, this, they I can, mean, I think this is something we should probably explain to the audience. I mean – this is a midterm election, and in midterm elections, the party that is uh, opposite of the president of the United States typically does not do well in midterm elections. And we saw that the House, the U.S. House of Representatives, flipped to uh, Democrat control. We saw that across the country. Well, but that did not translate in Oklahoma. Uh, yet we're going to talk in a minute about Kendra Horn and and that race, but. By and large, what is going on in Oklahoma right now uh, is not good news for the Democrats, and and the future does not look great either. Um, We're going to go into uh, the 2020 race in which they're going to have to defend some vulnerable seats. They're holding a, in the Senate, they're holding a seat in the Tulsa area that is a Republican seat, quite frankly. It would be very Mm -hmm. difficult to hold that. And so uh, it, it only gets better for the Republicans in 2020. Uh, which is hard to believe. Yeah, and I think maybe to take one quick step back, we're, we're about the 30-minute mark here of recording, so we need to go on to a couple other issues. But to take one quick step back, um, it, would be, it would be short-sighted not to point out that Republicans, uh, in terms of the majority of Republicans, the caucuses, did themselves some favors in their primaries and runoffs, knocking off um, the most vulnerable Platform caucus, no voting, hell no voting, um, sometimes not showing up on Thursdays, um, you know, lawmakers and who were who were you can laugh on camera. You, you you're allowed to laugh on the audio, Ryan. You're over here dying. Um, he's not going to be there anymore for you to lobby. Uh, anyway, the <laughs> the um, point being that I think Republicans, uh, through the effort that that Chris Kennedy, uh led, you know, they, they defeated their most, their weakest links, and then that left some fairly strong, moderate, uh, or at least they didn't have any baggage yep. uh, going yep. into a Democrat, going into the general election. And I think you saw that it was difficult for education groups um, to, to try to take those people out because the people who they had the best evidence as being parts of the problem were gone yeah they weren't Uh, on those ballots eight of them had lost and 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 then in the meantime um no democrat filed uh, to challenge sean roberts in in the pahuska seat so which would have been they could have potentially um you know had had a chance in that seat they would have Uh, had that message to use that there right sure right and then and so um so i think there's a lot to to get to that it's going to be harder in 2020 and then there's then you have redistricting and redistricting is probably its own podcast uh, down the road um if if nobody has anything else let's jump back to oklahoma county where we are here um and talk about the fifth congressional district which was the only congressional district in oklahoma to switch and it's the first since 2010 to elect a democrat in the state of oklahoma and kendra horn a uh, first-time candidate, former uh, uh, operative for former Congressman Brad Carson, who represented the second congressional district, by the way, just for the record. Um, Kendra Horn defeated incumbent Republican Steve Russell by, what, 3,200 votes, something like that? Yeah, in that ballpark, sorry, I've got the map up. Um, it was, yeah, about 30, 32, 3,300. And so that was surprising to folks, and she led— in early voting, and she led um, all the way start to finish, and, and even when the last six or seven precincts came in, uh, she expanded her lead by a hundred or two two votes. And and you know, I, I have some thoughts on that race. What did you guys um, think? Maybe maybe let's start with uh, the fact that there there was one debate. We had one chance uh, to see them side by side, and uh, we hosted the debate uh, with some partners, and I wanted to thank you guys as sponsors of the debate. Uh, FKG Consulting was a sponsor, along with some other folks. And I thought it was a really interesting night. I thought it turned out to be a pretty good debate between yeah. the two of them. Um, what were you guys' takeaways from how they matched up side to side, maybe not only on the debate, but also on policy issues? Well, I think... Um you know, what, what's kind of interesting, I think the takeaway on, on this issue is, first of all, policy-wise, they were, they were very um, far apart uh, policy-wise, so there was a good contrast for voters to, to pick from. Uh, you know, there's going to be a lot of criticism of Steve Russell for the race that he ran, and, 
you know, I will I will say this to to we hear this a lot in politics. People hate negative campaign ads. Mm-hmm. They hate negative campaign ads. We hear it over and over again. Why do you have to run negative campaign ads? One of the takeaways from the Steve Russell race is he is one, he is one of the few candidates that said I'm not running any negative campaign ads. Right, and he loses. Yep, and which is the it, same thing that Steve Largent. The same thing did that Steve Largent did. Too. That's did exactly not, right. Did not run any negative ads against. Uh, then Senator Henry. That's right. And lost that. You know, the, the old saying is there's two times to run negative campaign ads. It's when you're behind and when you're ahead. <laughs> and, yeah. uh, you know, I think that um, on the one hand, I mean, I got to be honest, on the one hand, I it, I sort of like the idea that Russell didn't want to go negative. And, um, you know, he wound up actually cutting an ad that was on TV and he used a, a part in the debate that was kind of getting rowdy among the, the audience and stuff like that to talk about. And it was sort of an odd turn of phrase. Some people I'd heard them criticizing, you're saying like, find a different way to say this. But he said, I've done the worst things a man can do in war is what he meant. Right. Which is an odd thing for a politician to stand on a stage and say, I've done the worst things a human can do. Um, but he basically said, I'm not going to go over the cliff of incivility. I'm not going to trash my opponent. I'm not going to do uh, any of that. And, on the one hand, that's sort of admirable in this day and age because every other race in, that I had to pay attention to got pretty negative. You yeah, know? You, you would love to think that that's the way the world should be, you know, right? right I mean, right. all of us would love to right. to, to uh, say that's how all races should be. The problem is he's going to be exhibit A for every candidate that comes after him of how uh, <laughs> how to not run a race like that and to make sure that you are uh, defining your opponent. I mean, that's that's right. the biggest thing. I think my takeaway is is that Kinderhorn, uh, Oklahoma County, is just changing, uh, and we we saw evidence that that's where Drew Edmondson did really really well. Mm-hmm. That had to help Kinderhorn. Um, you know, having the uh, educators and Democrats in Oklahoma County energized to go out and vote not only for Drew but also for Kinderhorn. Uh, also, there were some really dynamic, good legislative uh, races that Democrats uh, did well in. Uh, they flipped two uh, state Senate seats in Oklahoma County that from Republican to Democrat control. Mm-hmm. Uh, they did the same thing on um, you know a couple of House races. And so I think that collectively, that's that's a little bit of the story. I don't think, I don't think it's just a case of okay, they all rode the uh, wave of Oklahoma County. I think they helped generate, you know, that turnout. You know, I think collectively they all helped generate that. Absolutely. I mean, I think that I saw multiple people who were talking about they they voted, um, you know, st- straight ticket female, uh, yeah. and they were very excited. It, you know, and these were this is men who were saying this. Yeah. You know, they were they felt that there was some new blood, and it wasn't just it it wasn't just oh, there's women on the ballot. Uh, Every one of the women who uh, won in Oklahoma County, for, um, and there are, and there were uh, the Republican women as well. Right, and but it, you, you, every every one of them, uh, from Carrie Bloomer to Carrie Hicks to Julia Kurt to Kendra Horn, down to a number of the judge races as well. I mean, almost every yeah judge races. Uh, Natalie Mai, mm-hmm. um, Heather Coyle, mm-hmm. Kendra Coleman, um, Nikki Nice in uh, Ward Seven, Ward Seven for Oklahoma City. City. Yep. Um, every one of those pe- I've met. I've personally met everybody but but Judge Mai and Judge Coyle. Um, every one of those uh, people is a very good candidate. I mean, a, a very serious, um, prepared, focused, uh, running for the right reasons. You know, not not running out of out of an ego kind of thing. Right. Uh, you know, and so I think that I think that that probably helped maybe turn some people to vote for for that slate of candidates who might be registered Republican, you know, who maybe got their doors knocked uh, in a way that mm-hmm. that said, hey, you know what, I, I like what I'm hearing. I'm hearing I'm talking about Social Security. I thought in the debate that, that we had, one of the biggest differences was the discussion of Social Security. And um, it could have been it could have been a little bit uh, juicier, I guess. But I thought that um, if I were, I thought back about it. And if I were listening as a voter, and especially if I were a senior, and AARP was a sponsor, and and there were a lot of seniors who were paying attention, you know, I, I heard Kendra Horn talking about um, concerns about the trust fund running short, uh, concerns about funding for it, concerns about uh, 
on the national level a narrative that maybe Republicans wanted to cut Social Security. Um, and then when when we asked uh, Congressman Russell, you know, what what is what do you believe can be done to to shore up Social Security for the next generation and make sure it's solvent? Um, do you think you know needs to be a, an adjustment of benefits or raise of the of the retirement age? Um, or a, a, a raise in revenue for the program. Um, he said that, well, the strong economy will take care of that, and then he literally referenced the guy out front who was, who, who, who was running a hot dog cart, and we'd hired a guy to, to sell hot dogs at the, at the debate, and he said, you know, and you can get a job and be innovative in this country, and you could, you know, get, you know, get a hot dog cart, and he threw that out there. And it was a small moment, but to me, I, and I talked to several people, even Republicans afterwards, who thought that that was just a very bizarre kind of moment because it, it it just was so not germane to the discussion of how do you make social security solvent for for mom for dad for grandma for grandpa that that the the economy they can't that's not going to give them security to think well i'm just going to hope the economy does well under president trump you know they they want to know somebody's in there and they're going to make sure the numbers add up and that we can have a cost of living adjustment next year um and I just thought it was an interesting thing. And and for the record, and and again, I have I have respect for Congressman Russell, and I I I know that in a in a packed room, you know, maybe you don't give the answer you want to in retrospect, but you know, just the the, the guy who was out front who did a great job, uh, you know, that's his second job. I mean, that that wasn't his. That, this was not a way that he was, um, you know changing markets and uh you know innovating in a capacity that was going to um, build him an empire this was a second job that he was trying to earn a couple hundred extra bucks uh, after he left his first job and i just i just felt that to me and in terms of the discussions of the policy and that that debate to me that was a part where if this is what kendra horn was talking about on the doors versus if this is what's on Congressman Russell's mind, I saw that opportunity for her to reach some people who were maybe swing voters. Yeah. Um, because I, I felt like she was talking more about Medicare and those things that, that your active voters likely go after. Yeah. And I know we're probably trying to wrap up on sure, this section, sure. but one thing that I think that sets up an interesting dynamic for, and we talked about this a little bit for, is, is the 2020 race in CD5. I yes. Mean, I think what it kind of it gives a number of Republicans, and I think that's probably a topic for the future, but a number of Republicans in the state and the Oklahoma City metropolitan area uh, thoughts of ideas of dreams of running for Congress in 2020. Oh, yeah. Because it, it really, I think, if you look at the registration numbers in the seat, it's still, it's very much in play. I mean, I, I think right. going into the race, we looked at it as kind of a lean Republican or likely, depending on what you, you saw, but obviously Horn cam Horn's campaign was, uh, ran a great campaign to get herself there, but... I think it definitely will set up to be quite a battle in 2020. So it'll be interesting to watch. And you have that 2020 uh, Republican advantage because it'll be a presidential year. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and you may have some more people come out or you may have a situation where, depending on who the Democratic nominee is, um, that person's been painted so negatively they tie uh, Congresswoman Horn to, to that candidate. And obviously she's got to endorse. She's not going to not stand with her party's presidential candidate, uh, you know, running in re-election. Um, because the other thing is she's got to do is she's got to go. Somebody said, you know, they felt like she needs to go raise $5 million between now and Yeah, and I mean, and she's, I, and I don't know that that's wrong. It's probably she, not. Her first vote out of the gate is going to be one that is likely going to come back to be in an ad, and that is – if she's voting for Nancy Pelosi for Speaker of the House. You know, that would right. be the first thing. And right. what, what's kind of interesting about this is Surely that, they can come up with somebody else, right? <laughs> or is, are, they, are we really going to turn back the clock to I, 2006? That's what it sounds like. But, that is yeah. baffling to are, me. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, I, but I don't, yeah, I don't I mean, pay attention to Washington politics. So yeah, but I think what, what what's interesting about that is that a lot of people have, you know, I try to compare this to some legislative races. You know, Cindy Munson, for instance, won a, a Republican seat several years ago and everyone uh, not everyone a lot of people said well that'll be short-lived you know she's she's going to be a short timer and cindy munson just dominates her elections because she is an outstanding candidate works hard great legislator all those things 
Well, I think the same could be could happen with Kendra Horn. The only issue that's different there is the national politics. Yeah, the focus of it, exactly. And, and so much of that race in 2020 will end up being about um, what's going on nationally, the presidential race, all those type of things that are just going to be out of her control that people like Cindy Munson don't necessarily have to ha- have have to be stra- uh, strapped with. So I, I do think that that will be interesting. One, one thing I wanted to mention for you all, because I don't, I don't know the answer to this, but in looking at a lot of these results, like here's a here's an example where we're talking about CD5. For absentee uh, votes, Kendra Horn uh, won the absentee votes by by a pretty decent amount. um, Drew Edmondson beat Kevin Stitt in absentee voting as well. It's really interesting that absentees, if you go and look at all of these Democrat uh, races, came in really strong for the Democrats over the Republicans. I don't really know what the explanation, because we were seeing absentee, uh, those that were voting, it was showing about 50% Republican and about 40% Democrat. So the fact that absentees came in stronger for the Democrats right. are, are a little fascinating. Now we're talking about pockets. Well, I, I, I use the governor's race. So, you know, statewide, that was the case, but I think it's, I don't know. I don't know how to, how to explain that. It um, might be. Yeah. I'd like to see an age breakdown of absentee voters. You know, I, I would imagine you have some people who are off at of college, um, who are maybe a little more likely to go Democrat. I, you know, you maybe have people who are, um, you know, well-to-do who are expatriated, but stay, keep their legislation, keep their registration here. You know, I, I really don't know. Um, but uh, want to, I, but I just, I just think that, that that's going to be a tough race in 2020. And I think that, um, you know, it's sort of funny in this, in this race, the Horn campaign sort of hit Russell for taking PAC money. And uh, something tells me that Kendra Horn's going to take some money well uh, and she and she she benefited you know, she did benefit you know one thing to. we haven't talked about oh, is right. there in the very last week mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, Michael Bloomberg's pack dropped four hundred thousand uh, dollars or roughly somewhere around that three thousand four hundred twenty three thousand dollars into um, uh, supporting uh, Kendra Horn to get to win be curious as to uh, you know what kind of impact that made made on the race I think it made a big one because I saw more of those ads than I did about the governor's race for the last yeah, the last week. Really, Definitely. those were. Yeah. Um, and and she also, you know, there was a uh, there was a strategy at some point in time in that campaign to really talk about education, talk mm-hmm. about when Steve Russell was in the legislature and how he didn't fund education and all that stuff. So, um, you know, hats off to any time. Look, I think you have to say this both about um, we talk about all these other factors, but at the end of the day, hats off to Kendra Horn, hats off to Kevin Stitt uh, that we're talking about on these races. Uh, You don't win these races by, you you know, flukes. People, they work hard, they bust their butts, uh, they message things well, they do all those type of things. And so, uh, you know, you gotta, I think you gotta congratulate both of them on. Yeah, no, both of them ran hard campaigns and both of them, um, you know, did a a good job and and got the result they were looking for. to, to pivot real quick, I know we're up against the clock. Uh, what do you guys think? I'm going to frame this in terms of education, but let's talk about the 2019 legislative session. Let's talk. Let's let's look forward. What do you think the results from Tuesday do to shift the narrative uh, coming into the next legislative session? And and I mean that from the governor's standpoint, obviously. Um, Medicaid expansion or accepting federal dollars for Medicaid is going to be a harder lift. Um, it, it is interesting, you know, Matt Pinnell, the lieutenant governor, has has specified that he's in favor of that. Um, Stitt had sort of cut a, a, a more narrow needle with um, saying that he wants as many federal dollars as he can get. I heard multiple people saying he said that in public and private settings, mm-hmm. um, but that he was opposed to Medicaid expansion itself. Um you know, that, that becomes a, a harder lift on the face of it. But then also we're looking at, you know, maybe 300 to $500 million in, you know, allocations that um, would be beyond last fiscal year. And obviously education is going to uh, want a, a chunk of that, but there are other needs as well. Where do you think uh, the corrections, mental health, transportation, um, you know, a lot of different issues, higher education, uh, all of those sorts of things. Where do you guys see that fight shaping up, and how do you think? Do you think Oklahoma Ed came out stronger in the legislature as a result of this this set of elections, or no? 
No, I don't think so. I mean, um, the, the, the governor's race became such a glaring education uh, kind of um, race, and uh, the fact that Stitt won so overwhelmingly with clearly uh, education supporting Drew Edmondson uh, to the to the extent that they did. So I think that uh, education, from in, in, in some respects, uh, did not fare well. That being said. Education had an impact on some of those primaries and runoffs and, and, and some of these legislative races. Uh, I think that, that what you're going to see is, is that I think that the difference is going to be uh, where Drew Edmondson was going to come in, and I think that he was going to probably uh, force Medicaid expansion. I think he was going to force a conversation about revenue-raising measures. Uh, I think he was going to force a lot of those type of things. I think in, with Stitt, you're, I think revenue-raising measures are going to be off the table. Uh, like you said, they have they have money. Uh, there is money to be spent. I think that Medicaid expansion is not off the table, but I don't see them tackling that out of the get-go. Um, I, I would agree with that. I, yeah. I would I would think that they are going to attempt to try and. Uh, invest a little bit into the Medicaid system, get some provider rates back, you know, to where they need to be before they kind of have that conversation. Um, I, I could see that happening, uh, but I think they'll spend money, and I think education is going to—they're um, uh, going to get m- new money this year. I, I do think that that Kevin Stitt feels like he has to uh, invest in education. He was criticized so much about that and some of the positions that he had taken. I think that he's going to have to uh, show that, and I think that. He also is going to um, have to show some ability to show some savings within state government uh, and, right. and take those savings and invest into education or stuff like that. That's a good question on health care, Ryan. I want to get to you in a second. Uh, you think they're going to you think managed Medicaid will get another uh, attempt in the starting line? I, I think managed, managed Medicaid seems to be uh, out there lingering at all times. Um, you'll, but if you go back and look in the Republican-controlled legislature last year, it was soundly defeated. And so I think it's well, still on the table. But, but, I, but I think it was because there was a financial cost to it. And, there's, and, and now you have money to, now you can maybe wiggle. A I, I think so, that. but the providers so, so much oppose that. And, and, and now go back. What providers? What providers oppose that the most? Rural healthcare providers. Who controls rural areas of of the legislature now? Republicans. So right. it makes. So yeah, on one hand, I know that managed Medicaid is a philosophical kind of Republican issue to some extent. Uh, but but I think when they get in there and they start recognizing the politics around it, um, I don't see them jumping out of the gate and trying to accomplish that. I, I think you could be right, jump out of the gate. But I I do hear a lot of people who want to oh, want yeah, to do sure. this. And I think with as Medicaid expansion continues to be a topic of conversation, I think those two are going to be intertwined to some degree. And I think that's where yeah. we may see it come back into the fold, uh, whether or not it actually becomes a part of that. Are Are you saying that possibly? People could work together to strike a deal that gets everybody a little bit of what they want. Is that is that something that anybody uh, ever does in uh, politics? Blasphemy. Yeah. 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 I don't know. It's plausible. It. We're not it saying would, that's yeah. actually going to happen, in but it's theory. plausible. In yeah. theory, yeah. right? It would require people to undig their heels out from the far wings of the stage and walk to the center and and make some differences. I, I do. I know we need to wrap up the podcast because we're going late, but I don't want to get out of the night without talking about just really quick you know we had these state what state questions uh and not going to spend time going into each state question but it was a fascinating night only one state question passed uh and that was the state question 794 uh the marcy's law victims right and that overwhelmingly passed but every other state question failed and you know some of them uh 793 who we we worked on on that was a contentious race and you saw a lot of ads but some of the others that I think were fascinating, the governor and lieutenant governor running on the same ticket failing, mm-hmm. I, I don't know how that happened. Uh, <laughs> I really don't. You know, the, some of those just are right, baffling the, to the, me. The Vision Fund that the GP the, the would have taken GPT and and taken a rolling average of it and stuff like that. And I, I don't I don't think there was enough. Um, the sense I've gotten is I don't think there was enough broad awareness enough. Right broad messaging um, and, there, and there may not have been the oxygen even if there had been more money behind him to actually get those out there with every other statewide race being so i mean yeah just taking taking i mean did you see room. any of those on tv I, 
No, I I, I don't recall. I, don't, I mean, I saw I, some. I, know they, I saw some I, digital I know there and was social. A little but bit, that's yeah. A, yeah, they did a little one. One of the chambers or something did a little one on the Vision Fund. I yeah. saw just barely a little bit about that. Uh, I almost I I feel like the Vision. I'm not shocked at the Vision Fund. It had gross production tax in the title, right. mm-hmm. and that's so controversial that I, people probably didn't know what they were voting on. Well, uh, and I think that it, late in the game, educators uh, kind of came out opposed to it, and I think mm-hmm. some of that, you know, I. I mean, I think I and 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 let's be clear, they are pointing to that as a huge victory. So on a night when there were not other victories mm-hmm. to be had for educators, they boy they beat eight hundred one, they beat eight hundred. Right. I just think it's odd in the state question world that um, I just I thought it was odd that we live in a world where everybody wants change. You know, both Republicans and Democrats would tell you that you know things we need to undo what the other party's done, and Republicans will say you know we need to. We need to be more creative. We need to have more reforms of government. We need to have this, that, or the other. Democrats will say, you know, we need to be smarter. We need to quit doing things the same way we've done everything. And when you give the voters chances to to make some substantial changes in those realms, they voted no. Yeah, no, I mean, <laughs> and I, I think it, it's bizarre. Yeah, I think it just shows that in almost every case that the default position of the Oklahoma voter on a state question is likely going to be no. And I mean, right. it, and getting up and it's incumbent on the yes vote to try to get over that hurdle through education because i mean it can be as clearly worded a ballot question as possible and there's still going to be some type of confusion so ryan what did you th- what do you think looking forward in the next session i asked brian and we'll have you and then we'll wrap up well you know we've obviously covered medical marijuana to a great degree so that's i think going to take a lot of take a lot of the focus um Ooh boy how long till someone lights up in the Capitol, right <laughs> <laughs> you know i mean we didn't mention the new balance in the senate but it's essentially what it was previously it had one uh, the democrats act did pick up a seat there so it's at we're at 39 to 9 now um so but really i in terms of our, our balance on both sides it's 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 pretty similar structure it's pretty similar leadership teams obviously we'll have a new pro tem but it's floor, previous floor leader moving up there so you know it, i think brian covered it pretty well it's it's a it's a matter of a how much actual surplus do we have when we factor in the new cost and that that's still to be determined based on collections what we see and then how does that get divvied up and i think we've got you know there's probably going to be some sentiment that says you know we we did a a, we obviously have more to do for education but there's other major areas that we didn't get to tackle last year so it'll be interesting to see how they they balance those out yeah and i think that um you know education is going to be fascinating to watch this year i i think educators really were energized last year with the walkout they they enjoyed all of that there was a lot of um you know coverage about it and everything else the state department of education has put in their budget request and i think they're wanting 400 plus million of new dollars you know be it's going to be really difficult with the excess revenues to give all 400 million and fund that request and so especially after it was increased by uh, what you know 200 million yeah, exactly. You know, for, for a teacher raise, that's last right. Year. So you know, are we going to get to a point in 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 the middle of session in which we start hearing rumblings of another walkout or something like that? Because I'm sure, the, somebody, the, will, the, I'm sure there'll be a Facebook. <laughs> so, so you know, I think that that'll be interesting to watch uh, because uh, I think on one hand, educators are are energized from all of that stuff. On the other hand, uh, you know, their candidate did not win for governor, uh, and, and many of their candidates didn't. I, the number that were endorsed by educators did not do particularly well uh, in, in the legislative seats. That's right. So. That's right. So it's it's hard to figure out where the public is on, on those type of issues. I think the public wants education properly funded. I, I do think the public wants it. There's just some disagreements on how you go about doing that. Well, and, and I think there's also some disagreements in terms of, uh, you know, it, we have this notion, this dichotomy notion as a state where it's either one or the other. We either need to we either need to tackle wind subsidies or raise uh, taxes on oil and gas, uh, or we need to uh, increase spending on education, or we need to um, try to reform the system to get more dollars in the classrooms. Uh, there's a there's a dozen other examples of that, and, and I always wonder wh- why we can't do both, right? Yeah. Like that that, and I don't I don't mean that to any of the industry people I named, but you, you get my point. Is I don't I I don't know. I don't know why the idea that we would look at reforming our education system uh, offhand is a bad thing. If we if we have added revenue to it this past year and we're going to add another couple hundred million to it this next year, 
Um, I, I don't know that that fixes all the issues that we have. Mm -hmm. And I don't know that, um, I don't know that educators would tell you that. Uh, and I don't know that, that school superintendents would tell you that some of them would, some of them, some of them wouldn't, but I, I just think that it's hard. And this is something that we at non-doc try to do a lot. And that frustrates me is I just think sometimes we don't have really honest conversations about the policy topics at hand. Right. And so on that, um, I think we're nearly at an hour here. And uh, any final thoughts from you gentlemen? Brian, we'll go to you and then. I think we're just happy to have all of this behind us. I know. Uh, I almost brought a bottle. Yeah. <laughs> it has <laughs> no been joke. a long election se season and a lot of a lot of uh, just kind of roller coaster ride through the process. And um, <laughs> uh, and just the fact that it's over with, I think we can all uh, take a deep breath. Now we can count down to the Iowa caucuses. I mean, come on. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> on that note, I got to go punch somebody in the gut. Uh, stay with us for future episodes of How We Got Here. Um, rate us, review us, like us, share us, tell a friend about this podcast. And um, yeah, subscribe to us if you get the chance. Take care. How We Got Here is a presentation of FKG Consulting in association with Nondoc.com, produced and edited by Bryce Holland. For more information, visit fkgconsulting.com and nondoc.com.